Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information when you're ready to ride metro we want you to know we're ready for you here are just a few of the people at metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe we're cleaning like never before we're hospital grade clean you'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the metro no mask no metro need one we have a few extras at metro we're doing our part to keep the dc area moving Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. So there are guests we have on the show on a regular basis where you think, we need to talk to this person for longer. There's not enough time here. Well, here's the chance with one of our favorite guests. It's extra large. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty. Extra large. Man, I don't know who that is, but that guy's got good pipes. Oh, yeah, nice pipes. Listen, all who have ears, friends, Romans, countrymen. Finally, a chance for an extended chat with Lon He J. Chen, the David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, also the Director of Domestic Policy Studies and Lecturer in the Public Policy Program at Stanford University. So we've been wanting to talk to you for a long time about government and that sort of stuff and uh, your knowledge base, and and not particularly about, uh, at the time we're recording this, the biggest crisis of my lifetime, the coronavirus and everything else, but some of it fits together. We've been wanting to talk to you about bureaucracy disease and a government this size and whether it can react. And I don't know if you saw the breakdown in the Wall Street Journal the other day in all the different ways the CDC and the FDA and all different organizations have not reacted to this very well. Too many regulations, too many layers, too many rules. Um, is there anything that can be done about that? Will we get better at that ever, or is that just the product of a growing and growing government? Well, we can get better at it. It's going to require us to take a careful look at 
what needs to be there and what doesn't. So you guys have already hinted at a few of the challenges we have. One is, you just look at healthcare as an example. We've got so many different types of bureaucracy that are involved. We've got so many different agencies. And make no mistake about it, there are functions that those agencies serve which are important. So we don't want to denigrate the functions that they play. But we, we do want to think about who actually has authority to do things when something happens. And that's the challenge you have when you have overlapping uh, responsibilities. You have in healthcare, for example, uh, an agency that's designed to approve new drugs and new therapeutics at the FDA. You have an agency that's designed to be there to deal with uh, the spread of disease and control the spread of disease. That's the CDC. Then you've got the Department of Health and Human Services, which is theoretically over all of them. Yet those agencies are expected to operate somewhat independently. And then you have, you know, various other small agencies I'm forgetting about as well. So we've got to figure out how to streamline all of this. And it's going to take an, a, a sort of holistic approach. And someone needs to come along and say, hey, let's stop and let's do this. Because what always happens in government is the urgent crowds out the important. So a lot of steps we need to take and most certainly a lot of changes that can be made. I have a feeling there are some really fundamental forces at work here. Our friend Tim Sandifer likes to talk about how, in general, in government, success is punished. I mean, if you accomplish your goal having used only 80% of your budget, you have budget taken away, um, and, and failure is rewarded. You get a bigger budget. You get more people. And there's the question of defending turf. Every, every, well, many bureaucrats want nothing more than budget and people and, and turf. And, and if, if that's their strongest impulse, then it's going to be really hard to tear it down and rebuild it. You're right. So that, that mindset is absolutely prevalent in lots of parts of the federal government and state government and, and probably even city and local government. But the, the challenge is that how these bureaucrats measure success oftentimes is by how much budget they get, to your point, how many you know, people they have on their team how big of a bureaucracy they can create, what kind of process they can create around that bureaucracy. And it, instead of measuring outcomes, we need to be better about measuring outcomes. Our system of government has to determine what is the effective best outcome we want to get to, and then let's optimize for that. Instead of saying what we really want is a bigger bureaucracy, what we really want is a new government agency. I mean, I think back to how much people like Elizabeth Warren celebrated the creation of a government agency during the financial crisis. And are there important things that that agency could be doing? Sure, protecting consumers, that's an important thing. But did they ever stop to ask for a minute, are there ways to get there in the existing structure by making it leaner and more efficient versus, hey, let's just graft a whole new federal agency onto other federal agencies that already exist? So this kind of thinking, unfortunately, is prevalent in Washington. And it's not just Democrats and progressives who think that way. By the way, we got a lot of people who are so-called conservatives who are up there trying to do many of the same things to create more and more government because you, you get captured. You get captured by Washington and the thinking of that place, and you end up buying into the same kind of logic about what it's going to take to get something done. I'm so pessimistic that that will ever happen, though. Can you give me an example of it ever happening in world history where a giant bureaucracy <laughs> actually uh, shrinks and becomes leaner and meaner and more effective unless it's forced to by a devastating war or maybe a virus. 
Well, that's exactly what it is, right? There has to be some external, you know, the, the fancy political science word is exogenous. There's got to be some kind of external shock or external factor that changes how people do business or changes, you know, c- creates the predicate for people to say, you know what, this isn't working so well. And I would bet there's been, I mean, even now, right, people are saying we need to create some kind of commission to go study, you know, why it is that we didn't have tests for coronavirus early on. And my thing is, you know, why not take some organ that's already in the government? We have something called the inspector general's office in each agency. Why not have an existing office whose responsibility it is to study where things go wrong? Let's have them study it and say, really, what about this agency worked and what didn't? And not be afraid to put out there, you know what, there are parts of this agency that have to get cut. There are certain people that have to get cut. And, yeah, maybe there's certain other parts of the agency where we need more people and more funding. So you're suggesting okay. a, a Department of F-Ups. I, I could, <laughs> so I could run that. I've <laughs> got a fair, fair amount of experience. <laughs> that would be, I was going to say, that would be every agency of the federal government. I mean, I, I, if, if, you went, if, if you went through and looked at all of the ways in which parts of the federal government have or have not worked, you would see, you would be shocked. If we actually studied it and looked at it, you would be shocked. But we need to be doing that, right? We need to be assessing what's working and what's not, but doing it on a regular basis, not just when we have a once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic. Now, I'm, to answer Jack's question, I, I know several of the Nordic states that a lot of people look to as socialist paradises have actually scaled way back on government spending since their experiments of the 60s and 70s. That might be an example, but the problem, anytime you look at those states, is that they are small, they are homogenous, and, and right. you know, it's a limited number of families. They all know each other. I mean, the, the, the countries are almost that small. Yeah, and, and they have significant limits on who can come into the country. They have significant limits. I mean, we, we talk about having such a, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we need a more open immigration system. I'm all for an immigration system that tries to get the best and the brightest here to to help our economy and do all that sort of stuff. But you you talk about these Nordic countries. These are not an immigrant's paradise, right? They are extremely closed societies. They have a a very strong – they're guided by a strong sense of cultural and national identity. Uh, So it's relatively easy for them to do the kinds of things that they do. America is, I mean, we are a diverse, messy, beautiful country in that way. And, and so it's going to be a lot harder for us to do what they do, nor do we want to do what they do. What a lot of people don't realize is the level of control that has to be exercised by the government, the level of control that has to be exercised by society it is significant. And culturally in these countries, it is more well accepted. A lot of people, for example, use Singapore as an example of a country. They have great policy outcomes, a very efficient bureaucracy. They are extremely data and results driven, but they are essentially living in a quasi dictatorship. And people there are okay with it because it's a benign dictatorship, right? That structure would never work in America. We have way too many people and we're way too independent minded. And that's a good thing. It would help if anybody was ever held to account for any, uh, you know, mistakes, whether there were, it was incompetence or, um, you know, they did it for bad reasons. For instance, the CDC clearly misled everybody on uh, whether or not they had the ability to test for this thing. I mean, there, there, there are articles out there about this. I'll, I'll bet anybody money nobody loses their job. Um, somebody might get reassigned to a different d- division. Nobody's ever held to account for any screw-ups. 
Well, and, and I'll tell you, there's a political overlay here, too, right? Because it's easy enough to get rid of the person at the top, whoever runs the agency, right. political appointee, get rid of them. But when you start to dig into the bureaucracy, there surely are people within the bureaucracy who, to your point, uh, did not uh, did not act either appropriately or well enough or efficiently in this situation. But the, the minute you start to dig in there and the minute you start to think about it, you get accused of wanting to attack science or wanting to attack the civil service. When the reality is we have to be absolutely clear about why mistakes happen and we cannot be afraid to fix them. And, uh, you know, the, the, the politics it have become so toxic and so partisan in our country that any effort to do that is seen, oh, well, you're, you're, just a, you're just a Trumper. You're just somebody out there who, you know, wants to try and advance a conservative policy agenda. Look, I'm just trying to say, let's figure out what went wrong and let's fix it. I don't care who's responsible for it. Let's get to the, to the core of responsibility and let's fix the problem. But it's hard to have that conversation given the politics of where we are right now. Well, I agree with you completely that there are plenty of Republicans who want to grow the government, just different parts of the government. Um, but it, it seems to me it is mostly voters on the left who seem to have this knee-jerk defense of government and government programs and, and maybe it's because of the, the lefty voters' affection for unions or something like that. But it, it boggles the mind of a lot of us that so many people have as much faith as they do in government bureaucracies and don't see the, the waste and the abuse and the intransigence and, and, and the rest of it. I, I, I'm, have you ever done a study of that? I mean, really gone into people's worldview why some are so charitable toward government, uh, you know, m- misfunction. Yeah, I, I haven't uh, studied it myself, but I will say that that people who look at this generally conclude a couple things. So the, the first is that the belief in government is born out of a mistrust of the private sector or a belief that civil society, nonprofit institutions, churches, charitable institutions uh, in addition to the private sector, are incapable or fundamentally have their uh, incentives misaligned in a way. And so government is in a much better place to do it. I mean, a perfect example of this are all of the people on the left who have embraced single-payer health care, who have embraced Medicare for all. And what do you always hear them saying? You hear them saying, we cannot trust the insurance companies, we cannot trust private sector entities to deal with our health care system, we cannot trust doctors who are, who are out there for their own profit and their own gain. We have to socialize all of this because government knows better. It is just a – it, it goes to a misunderstanding of what has made America great. Not, I mean, not to get this political. I don't, I don't mean to, to put it in the Trump vein, but literally what has made America great over these years has been the existence of a system that has lifted more people out of poverty – and more people out of a lack of opportunity than any other economic system in the history of mankind. And sort of saying, we don't want that system. Instead, we want to go to a system where government controls the means of production, government controls how resources are allocated. And and I think it's born out of a genuine belief, guys, that that works better than the private sector. And that's why I think a lot of people on the left 
do have a instinctive answer for everything, which is, well, if only the government would get involved, if only the government would be in charge, if only you know, bureaucrats and people who are, uh, quote, dispassionate arbiters would be involved. I've heard this over and over again. But, uh, but it just belies a, a understanding of, of really what has made America prosperous. The end of human that, nature, I just in my opinion. Yeah, who are these angels? Where are we going to find them? I don't know what their world experience is that has led them to believe this, because my world experience has led me a different direction. Well, it's the it's the world experience that leads people like Bernie Sanders to say we need a Cuban style education system, right? I mean, it is a it is either a misapprehension of history or a willful, deliberate effort to to subvert an understanding of history in favor of uh, of of a particular agenda. I mean, that's the only thing that can explain it. it, it either you just don't, don't know the history, don't understand it, or don't want to. Oh, yeah, or th- it's wishful thinking. It's a, no, I'm sure we can get it right this time. I'm sure this will work. That I think yeah. is just ridiculous. But um, I wonder if it's as fundamental. Yeah. A, a lot of these questions comes down to the difference between people who believe there should be equality of outcome versus those of us who believe there should be equality of opportunity. Mm. And mm. if, and, and if the, you know, because yeah. you're never going to get equality of outcome out of the private sector out or, or out of any natural function of life. But why, why doesn't you know, it just as simple as you have you been to the post office? Have you been to FedEx? Have you noticed how they bust their ass at FedEx to make sure you're a happy customer because you're a happy paying customer? Have you noticed how at the post office you regularly run into a place? They don't care if you never come back. It doesn't make any difference to them. In fact, they'd prefer you did leave. That was I mean, as eloquent as Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address and shorter. Well that's done, the I say. only experience you need, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Well, right. And so this is also like the DMV is a perfect example of that, right? Why do people pay for AAA so they don't have to wait in line at the DMV, right? And and not that not that the AAA is a is a is a paragon of, of efficiency and effectiveness, but compared to the DMV, oh it sure does look like it, right? I mean. So, so, so it's a great point, which is if we believe in a society where resources have to be distributed equally, if we believe in equality of outcome, the folks who, who are in favor of socialism or in favor of a communist system, you know, they've got it right. That probably is the only way to ensure the exact equivalent distribution uh, of goods. And it seems to me that there are some on the left now who are more openly embracing that point of view, who are saying, look, actually, yeah, we, 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 we do need equality of, uh, of outcome. As opposed well, to they call it equity. Whereas, yeah. Yeah. I mean, whereas if you look at if you look at, um, at, at, the, at the history of our country and you look at what the founders and what great political theorists over the years have talked about, what you see is is a is a coherence around wanting to have to ensure that people have the same shot at success, which is why you put in place rules, right? The only reason we have laws and regulate, not the only reason, but one of the biggest reasons you have laws and regulation is to make sure that people are playing by the same rules. And are we angry when people don't play by those rules? Absolutely. Are we angry when there's cronyism? Yes, and we should be. But, but the answer has always been, let's give people a fair shot to compete, and then let's see what happens. And that, by necessity, is going to mean that we're going to have differences in outcome. And, and, and is it sad that there are differences in outcome? I don't know that it's sad. I think it's reality. 
I think it's the reality of the system we have, and I think it's the best economic system that mankind has ever seen. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I have two kids. If one of them ends up making twice as much money as the other one, I don't. I'm not going to feel like that's sad for the one who makes right. less. It's just the the direction they went with the talents they had and life decisions. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that that gets that, you know, should when should government act? Right. And the answer is there are times when government has to act because the uh, you know, because the rules aren't fair. OK, sure. Government should act to change the rules to make sure they're fair uh, in times when the system gets overburdened by something that we haven't expected. And we expect our government to step in, like with the coronavirus situation. Government steps in and says, "Okay, we're going to put in place some regulations to help keep people safe. That makes sense. But the notion that in the everyday functioning, what we really need is more government. I I just fundamentally disagree with that notion. And I and I just think history suggests that that will not lead in a not lead us to a great place. Well, let's get back to the question of uh, bureaucracy and dysfunction and bloat and and, and intransigence and all that. There obviously need to be a new there needs to be a new set of incentives and disincentives laid over government or sprayed into the buildings or something. I don't know, <laughs> some sort of fumigation. Um, what, uh, just on a basic level, if you were, you know, president or advisor to a president and and that president decided, and, and my God, I'd vote for him for a third term if they did this, they said, listen, my main mission is going to make, is to make the federal government lean and mean. What sort of incentives and disincentives would you suggest? What would that look like? Yeah, you know, I always think it's great to go back to first principles. So you, you start with the basic question, which is what do we want government to do and where, we, where do we want it to act? And set out um, a, a set of priorities and goals and figure out how to assess success against those goals. Figure out how you need to staff a team to reach those goals and then take a look at the reality and see what you have and compare X with Y. And I guarantee you they'll look nothing alike when you're talking about the U.S. government. You know, they're, they're, they're not, you know, you're not going to see a similarity between what's needed and what actually exists. And then go out there and actually begin to make those changes. Now, part of the challenge is you know, we got all sorts of rules in place about civil service protections and who can and can't be fired. And I, I understand we got all of that. And that part of it might be we need to take a, a, a serious look yes. at civil service rules. Yes. And say, are we really promoting the best and the brightest? No. So, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. That, 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 that's probably an easy question to answer. Well, I'm with He's FDR so, on that question. That's one of the few questions I'm with him on. He, he believed it was anathema to efficient. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital-grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask. No Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. For all you foodies out there, I'm unwrapping a McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel. Ooh, look at this steak. And the juice running down the side. Got a little bit on the wrapper here. Mmm. And then the fluffy egg and real cheese folded over the side looking just so good. Mmm. Mmm, grilled onions and a butter bagel too. Thumbs up for McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel for breakfast. 
Love it. Mm. I participate in McDonald's. Government, governance, but anyway. And I'll tell you another challenge we have, which is beyond the civil service rules. We have public sector employee unions in the United States, which to me, uh, you know, I think you talk, we could have a conversation about unions and, and the good that they've done in our society. And surely there was a point at which they were being very productive and important. And I think in the private sector, I can understand the desire to represent uh, a set of workers and have that relationship be governed by a set of rules. But why is it that we have such a huge role for public sector unions? We are essentially saying that we have developed a, a system so that the people who are working for the government can bargain against the government. Right. You've got people who are in there essentially represented with interests that are, that are adverse to the taxpayer interests. That, to me, makes no sense at all. The well, power and the scope and the reach of public sector unions is, has reached a point in the U.S. where we've got to address it. Well, particularly because in California is a great example of this, that the diffuse interests of the voters are, are, are not nearly as powerful in the actual hearing rooms as the union representatives. And so you have the best and brightest and smartest there in the hearing room arguing like crazy for one point of view. And then there's just this vague, you know, idea that the voters really want to get their pocketbooks protected. And there's just an imbalance. And then as it gets even worse in California, you have union lawyers supported by the government unions, the, the public employee unions, winning the offices and then negotiating with the people they replaced for the public employee union deals. It's just, it's, it's mobbed up. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, this is exactly the challenge you you've identified it, which is that you, you, you get this incestuous system that comes into place and it's not clear who's actually representing the interests of the represented, right? Because you have public officials who get captured by interests like, like the public sector unions. So if public sector unions are a huge donor to Democrats in California for statewide office, what do you end up with? You end up with statewide office holders who are remarkably uh, uh, responsive to the union bosses, but not particularly responsive to the taxpayer. And that, to me, is a huge problem, right? When you're talking about people who are supposed to – when you ask who is supposed to protect the interests of taxpayers – the answer is the people who the people who are elected by taxpayers, mm-hmm. but they're not doing their job. We have a big problem here. We have a system that essentially is perpetuating itself. And to get back to the original issue you guys raised around bureaucratic bloat and around why it is that our bureaucracy doesn't function better, the answer is because no one's holding them to account. Certainly no one that's supposed to be holding them to account. We send the same old people in California, for example, back to Sacramento, but you can go to any state capital. Or you can even go to Congress and see this. We send the same people back over and over again, and they are insistent on preserving the status quo, which clearly is not working. Yeah, I got a question out of nowhere, um, uh, and we have this opportunity with the podcast to ask you this. I like asking smart people this question because I like to read, but I want to read the right stuff. What are a couple of your favorite, like, all-time books um, to make a person smarter <laughs> about all this sort of stuff? Government, society, yeah. culture, whatever. You know, it, it, it's funny. My, my kids make fun of me because they say I don't read that much because they never see me reading books because I'm always reading, you know, news or you know, stuff that comes up online. I'm always having to it, tell it, my son, I'm staring at my phone, I'm reading a book. 
I just want yeah, you to know that because you, you know because I grew up. You know, you see your parents reading books, and you're going to maybe become a reader. They see me staring at my phone. I could be on Facebook. I could be playing candy, but sure. I'm 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 reading. But anyway, back to your book. Sure. Yeah, I, you know, um, there are pieces of fiction over the years that have been very influential uh, in my life. And I'll tell you, I don't want to freak anyone out, but my favorite book growing up was a book called 1984 by George sure. Orwell, sure. which everybody, you know, hopefully everybody's read. Right. And the reason why it's so important to have read that book is because it gives you a sense of just how overwhelming government can be. And I, by the way, people will, will, I often get the question, well, how did you become a conservative or how did you decide that you were conservatively disposed? And a lot of it has to come with reading that book and reading more and more about societies where, uh, where government does play a big role. And uh, so that book was actually quite influential. So, you know, 1984 is one. It's not, it's not a particularly tough read, but I think it's a really important read. Uh, and, uh, and it's one that's been influential. Well, and it's um, fairly I, I depressing, actually, too. So if you're feeling overly cheery, <laughs> that's, it's a good one. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, no, no. I, I, I completely agree. Um, uh, I, I've also recent, I'll just say recently, I've gotten quite into a theologian named Dallas Willard, who uh, you guys may or may not be familiar with him, but he's somebody who, um, you know, is a, is a theologian who has been very influential in uh, in a certain line of, uh, of Protestant thinking, in particular now Presbyterian thinking, uh, and and he has had a whole bunch of really interesting books uh, over the years. Some of them are quite dense. He's quite a dense writer, uh, but one that I've really enjoyed recently is called Life Without Lack, which talks about uh, you know essentially how to lead life fully. And how to feel full when we can oftentimes look around us and think, gosh, I'm missing that or I don't have this mm-hmm. or I don't have that or the other. Uh, and, 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 and so that one in particular has, has stuck out recently. But uh, and, you know, well, you got honestly, my attention with that one because I'm, I'm in that world a lot and I don't know that name. So I'll check that out. Yeah, we appreciate yeah. the recommendation. Hey, if I can just circle back to Orwell real quickly. Um, and, 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 <laughs> yeah. and comment that I, I was probably 12 when I read Animal Farm somehow or other. I think I, I came across oh, it. There a was a neat too. illustration of a pig on the front. And so I thought, hmm, a story about pigs. <laughs> a talking pig. But it, <laughs> talking pigs. Um, but it was like a religious awakening for me. I mean, it just I, I still can feel the electricity um, that ran through my veins as I read this thing. And, and I wondered, have you, you read uh, Brave New World? Yeah, sure. Of course, yeah. I, I had a feeling you had. I think about, you know, there, it's a it's a classic question: who got it more right, Orwell or Huxley? I think China is a pretty good example mm-hmm. of a, a regime taking just enough from Orwell and just enough from Huxley. You know, the point of Brave New World is that people weren't really oppressed so much as they were drugged and amused into apathy and cooperation. Um, yeah, that there's, you know, it, it takes both to oppress a society unless you're going to go full on, you know, oppressive regime. Yeah, that is a, that is an amazing observation, actually. And, and let me tell you why China is a great, uh, great example of what you're talking about. The 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 thing that is most noticeable to me about where China is now, and you know, we'll put coronavirus aside for a minute because I think coronavirus was a was a little bit of a of a blip in terms of where China is going more broadly. But the story that they've told people 
and I think this is a story that people genuinely believe, that economic prosperity and the lifting of people out of poverty in China is enough to justify the oppression the government has put in place. In other words, the deal that the Chinese government has with people is this deal. You can be a little bit more prosperous, and you can have food on your table, and you can have a society that looks modern and has all the comforts of modern society. But the only way you can have that is if you're willing to deal with what the government has put in place in terms of rules and regulations and requirements. And in China, those rules include things like constant monitoring. They include things like um, the government being able to see and know what you're doing all the time. They include uh, things like not being able to access a lot of the Internet, right? And people have been willing to take that deal, and they feel like, well, you know, my government's taking care of me. I'm doing a little bit better now. And so maybe they're right. The only way that I can be this way is if they have complete control over, over every part of my life. And I, I think it's a really good observation that it's, it, is a, it is a mix in some ways between the 1984 world and the Brave New World world because, it, because it's this deal that the Chinese government has put in place. One question on the news of the day that I hope doesn't age poorly. I don't think it will uh, when people hear this in the future. We're right in the midst of the biggest uh, stimulus bill in the history of the world. I don't know what's going to end up being somewhere close to $2 trillion. Should we be horrified that people are stuffing in all kinds of, of things that have nothing to do with coronavirus and business? Or should we just accept it as just part of the way the system works? I don't think we should accept it. I think we should be willing to call it out. I think we should be willing to say that this is not an opportunity to jam in there your pet project. This is not an opportunity to say, hey, you know what, uh, maybe we should put restrictions on what kinds of people can be named to the board of directors of, of companies. I, I've seen that that's something mm -hmm. you know, that Elizabeth Warren wants. I mean, this is not an opportunity to get every stray cat and dog in. This is an opportunity to make sure it goes back to the original conversation we were having, guys which is, what's our goal? What are we trying to do here? Who are we trying to help? Let's help those people, and then let's get out. Let's stop talking about the rest of this stuff, because this is what always ends up happening. And then you've got people on the outside who are self-proclaimed fiscal conservatives saying, hey, $3 trillion, $4 trillion, we need more stimulus now. Uh, it, it, it just does not make any sense to me that you would, that you would have a um, – people never want to waste a crisis, I guess, as Rahm Emanuel has said. And that's precisely what you're seeing here. But it doesn't make it right. Well, I thought there were crises big enough that you wouldn't have time to think about that. But maybe I was wrong. Yeah, you underestimated people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, believe it or not, these things are not scripted. So I'm going to ask Jack, um, do you have more on that you want to talk about? Or can I ask Lon Hee a little bit about his, his gig at uh, Stanford? Um, the uh, It's a truism at this point that American universities lean way, way left, and you see a lot of attitudes among college kids that I find abhorrent. Uh, you, given what you believe, are you just a pariah at Stanford? Do you have to run from doorway to doorway and, and fend off blows? or um, how, how are the youngsters <laughs> these days, are they open to uh, hearing opposing viewpoints? Uh, what's, what's a snapshot of the, uh, the college experience for you these days? Yeah, you know, for me at least, it, it, it's pretty. Um, it, it's always a pretty good set of experiences because what I find is that 
Well, let's start with the students. I mean, the students clearly are very left, and they have some very out there points of view. But if they're going to come and take a class of mine, they understand that they're probably going to be introduced to some concepts that other members of the faculty won't introduce them to. And some come seeking that out. So I end up with, with some students in my classes who are deliberately looking for that alternative point of view. I have some who are looking for a good argument, which I'm always happy to have. I have some who just come because they're curious in the subject matter but aren't particularly politically inclined one way or the other. And, and, and so I end up with a pretty good diversity of students, and I end up with pretty good conversation in my classes in particular. More broadly, I will say the challenge I have that I see on campus is not so much with the students, it's with the other faculty, and that there are a number of folks around the university who are in important positions, who, you know, who deal with students all the time, who have a very strong point of view and don't believe that any alternative point of view uh, holds any any merit. Now, I'm not speaking about everybody. There Good Lord, some, how can uh, you get to a, to a position of education at that level and have that uh, attitude? Well, they're, they're, they're so deeply steeped and they're so good at what they do that they don't necessarily believe that there's any alternate possibility wow. or alternate explanation, right? They're, they, they, they've been in what they're doing for so long that they just subscribe to that point of view. And they automatically, I mean, what bothers me is not so much people have strongly held beliefs. I'm all for that. Sure. What bothers me is, is when, they, when they say, look, you feel differently from me, and I'm going to ascribe bad intentions to you. That essentially I'm going to say the reason that you disagree with me is because you don't believe in science. Or you're a bad person you just in general. Yeah. Or Right, correct. Or you're heartless. Or you're you, a secret you know, you racist, something. Yeah, you're a racist. Sure. I mean, whatever, which, which I always find humorous when, when you know, when, yeah. when I hear that. But I, you know, that's, that's where it's a little bit tougher for me. And I feel like that is something I see, I'm seeing more and more of on campus, which is people who are so deeply set in their views that they're unwilling to consider that there might be an alternative. You know, I and, heard, and I've, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I have to say, I've, I've, I've got a lot of colleagues who, are, are quite left. And as I said, we're willing to entertain the alternative and we have great conversations, but it's the ones who are so set in their views that those are the ones that I find more difficult. I read a contemporary wise person say uh, the other day, and I have a feeling this wisdom goes back to the ancient Greeks or beyond that. When you lose your capacity to say, but I might be wrong, you've lost an incredibly important part of your humanity. And that's Those yeah. people scare me. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the problem with with uh, with American colleges and universities more broadly is that you do have a lot of people. I mean, just look at Twitter, right? The back and forth you see over Twitter on 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 things, and you've got people who are absolutely a hundred percent convinced that they are right and 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 they will never be wrong. Now, in in some areas, if they're talking about something they've researched for their whole life, I, I believe that they're probably hundred percent right. But when it comes to questions around uh, you know, what the best way is for society to move forward or questions about where we are politically, those get a little grayer for me. And I'm more than happy to admit that I may not know the right answer. In fact, in a lot of situations, I probably don't know the right answer, and I'm doing my best to guess. But I always try to tell people that, and I always try to say, look, I, I, I believe very well I could, I, this could be, right, could be wrong. 
And, and you're right. I think when we lose our capacity to do that, it's a sad thing. It's a very sad day. You know, the problem with smug contemptuousness is that it's kind of fun. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> right. And if you're surrounded by other right. people who agree with you, it can, it can feel really good. Oh, yeah. It can snowball, oh, yeah. too, until you can't stop yourself. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, maybe someday we can talk about uh, the future of college education, because that is a really interesting topic uh, to all of us, particularly as I pay for my third kid to go through that process. And this is not the classic sitcom level humor about, you know, writing checks. It's the idea that the dissemination of knowledge costs, you know, 30 to $60,000 per year, and you have to go to a big place with brick buildings seems fairly ridiculous to me at this point in history. Uh, not that there is no role for, you know, a Socratic seminar type thing and, and intellectual leadership by a learned human and directing learning. I think that's all incredibly important, but I just it's become something ridiculous, partly because of the flood of government money. But again, maybe that's a for another time. And we didn't even touch on the presidential campaign, which seems to be completely on hold, at least at the time we're recording this in the middle of the commie virus uh, thing going on. But. Uh, Joe Biden, it's, it's gotta be good news for Joe Biden, right? That he gets to hunker down and not have to talk very much. I, I, I think it's good news, but it, it's not going to be good news. Uh, once we, once a couple weeks passes because people are going to forget about it. Right. And, uh, I, I think staying out of the public light, being able to kind of prepare a message or, you know, rest or do whatever he wants to do. I don't know. I, I, I think those are positives, but, I think you're seeing a little bit of consternation from his camp that he can't get more involved in this coronavirus conversation, right? He's trying to get out there, and we've seen this a little bit as we record this, where he's trying to get out and, and, and appear almost like the shadow president who's got his own ideas and got his own thoughts. It, it just It's just not been effective. He just has not been able to put himself into the conversation. And I suspect that while it's nice to be able to lay low for a little bit, once this continues to go on as we drag into, you know, April and May, he's going to want to figure out ways to get into the limelight. And I think that's going to be something he's going to want to do because uh, it's easy to forget we've got a presidential campaign. Sure. But we do. Yeah. You know? It's funny how the universe, it seems cycle after cycle, uh, says, no, the election's going to be about this and it's almost like you're on some sort of game show what was that cooking show where they told you at the last second the secret ingredient you had to yeah it's very much like that the iron chef mccain and obama were set up to be an argument about the iraq war then the crisis happens and it's got nothing to do with it anymore yeah yeah seems to happen every time uh lon he it's always stimulating we don't want to steal too much of your time but i hope we can do it again absolutely thanks a lot guys our pleasure a little too smart for my taste yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'll ask him to dumb it down next time. <laughs> well, we, we covered so much ground. I have a yeah. feeling he could go deep in oh, yeah. quite a few of these he, topics. He is dumbing it down, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Especially um, when I ask him a question. But um, Oh, stop it. Um, I, I would love to, I could maintain, I think, a lifelong interest in the question of how do you rearrange incentives and disincentives to make government perform more efficiently? I couldn't because I'm too pessimistic about it. I just, I just can't imagine. Well, I would die bitter. No, no question about that. I just, just from being in in private bureaucracies, big companies, and seeing the government, it just, I've never seen it go the other way. It, it just, it grows and grows and gets more centralized. And gets thicker and slower, less responsive. 
Yeah, I'm thinking about the trends in media with a lot of consolidation and 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 thinning the the workforce and the rest of it. But I'm not sure it's that's not the model we're looking for. That's 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 starvation, not um, well, his stuff know, about increasing efficiency. Reforming per se. reforming the rules of civil service. If you don't start there, then then I'm walking out of the room. I yeah. mean, because if that's not on the table, it'll never happen until people can lose their jobs. Well, and serious reform of uh, public employee union rules, too. Yeah, if we don't have those two, we have nothing. Nothing. You're right. It's an excellent point. Extra large. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before, but hospital-grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the metro. No mask, no metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information hey guys back at the playground again huh yep you know what this playground could use a wine country heck yeah and some waves so we could go surfing oh, <laughs> ah, love that a redwood forest would be cool i'm in ah ski slopes let's do it um can a girl go shopping yeah, baby. wait did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.